All right. So Dr. Thibodeau is a professor of dermatology at the Pennsylvania State University of College of Medicine in Hershey, Pennsylvania. She specializes in the care of patients with acne and rosacea. Please help me in welcoming back Dr. Thibodeau. Okay. Thanks, Travis. Thanks again. So we're going to talk now about uh, uh, the pathogenesis and treatment of rosacea, another very common condition that we often see in our practices. In terms of disclosure, I've worked as a consultant or investigator for uh, the companies listed here, and I may talk about some off-label uses of medications that can be used in patients with rosacea. Just like acne, rosacea has a lot of different appearances, I think even more so than acne. You're probably all familiar with the subtypes of rosacea. You have the subtype 1, which is the erythematotillinjectatic variety, characterized by uh, erythema, uh, just macular erythema with no papules and pustules, like these patients. There's the subtype 2, which is the papulopustular variety, where patients can have papules and pustules on the cheeks, nose, forehead, and chin. The uh, third type is the phimidus variant of rosacea, where patients have uh, enlargement of the tissues of the nose. They have excess fibrous tissue. They have excess sebaceous gland tissue. And you can see some patients with that condition here. So <clears throat> some people wonder, even if, if all of these conditions are actually the same disease. But we all call them rosacea. We've sort of subcategorized them. And um, it makes it hard for us in terms of understanding the pathophysiology and understanding if the treatments that we have will equally affect all the subtypes of rosacea. There was a study done uh, recently published in the JAD that looked at quality of life in rosacea patients. And they broke the patients down into the erythematotillinjectatic type, the papulopustular type, and the phimidus type. And they looked at their quality of life in terms of the symptoms of their rosacea, the emotions that they experienced as a result of the rosacea, how the rosacea affected their overall function, and then this total score kind of looked at all of them together. And the higher the score, the worse the uh, quality of life was. So it turned out that the patients with the phimidus type rosacea really had the worst quality of life related to their disease. And you, can, you might imagine why that is. They've got disfigurement of the nasal tissue. Um, for those of you that might be older might remember the comedian W.C. Fields that had that large nose. And oftentimes that phimidus rosacea is linked with uh, drinking alcohol, which really may not be true. So there's sort of a stigmata to the phimidus type of rosacea. And I'll share with you some photographs of patients who have had the rhinophyma corrected. And there's some really excellent treatments for rhinophyma. And I will talk a little bit about those. This is an example of, uh, of the patient with the rhinophyma, uh, pretty severe. And um, there's always a question, and this might be of interest to you. There's a question as to whether the repair of the rhinophyma might be a cosmetic procedure or whether it's a medical procedure. Um, I would encourage you to take photographs of the patient's nose and submit to the insurance. If there's any impingement on the nasal, um, you know, the nares at all, then insurance generally covers it because in some patients that have severe rhinophyma, the tissue can be redundant and it can actually block the airway. So I wouldn't dismiss all patients as saying, well, no, insurance won't cover it, we're not going to help you, when in fact it's possible that they may. 
This is the same patient uh, who's been treated for the rhinophyma. You can see the dramatic improvement. Um, one of our surgeons at Penn State, uh, Liz Billingsley, uses a, a Shaw scalpel, which is a cauterizing scalpel. And basically, she's just able to shape the contour of the normal nose. And it makes a huge difference. And these patients are very, very happy about that. So I'm going to start by talking a little bit about the pathogenesis of rosacea. And this is an area that we unfortunately know a whole lot less about compared to acne. There are a whole list of things that might possibly be implicated in the pathogenesis of, the, of rosacea. But for the most part, it's pretty much unknown. Um, genetics plays a role to some extent. Rosacea often occurs in patients with light skin, light eye color, but not always. There are even patients that have, that have type 5 and 6 skin that have rosacea, patients in India, across the world. So um, we know that there is a genetic component, but not necessarily. It's possible that photo damage and altering the collagen in the tissue may contribute to the development of rosacea. The helicobacteria pylori and the demodex folliculorum, um, these are sort of controversial. In Europe and other parts of the world, they feel that this bacteria might be related. The jury is still out on whether the demodex mite is still related to um, the pathogenesis of rosacea, and a lot of other uh, potential factors that we may talk about, some of them. So rosacea is characterized by uh, erythema and inflammation. And we're not sure what causes the inflammation. Could it be a reaction to the demodex mite that's normally found in the follicles of the skin? Uh, could it be a reaction to other bacteria? Is it related to barrier disruption of the skin? Um, could it be related to increased activity of, oops, sorry, of enzymes in the skin? And I'll talk a little bit about um, serine protease enzymes that um, may be elevated in patients with rosacea. Is it a response to oxidative stress or possibly photo damage? So I'm going to review some of the evidence for the demodex mite. And there have been a variety of studies done across the world. This study was done in Greece, and they took 100 patients with rosacea and 100 controls, um, age and sex match controls, and also looked at 100 acne patients and 50 patients with lupus. They did biopsies of the skin. They uh, did a biopsy where you could remove the surface layers of the skin and also harvest the demodex mite. And what they found was that there's a high prevalence and density of the demodex mite and solar elastotic damage in the skin of patients with rosacea. A recent study in the Archives of Dermatology last year did a retrospective review of all the reported studies looking at the demodex mite in rosacea. So they reviewed 48 articles, both in the English language and Chinese language. And in looking at the reports, um, they concluded that there was a significant association between demodex and rosacea. But what you have to do is take a step back and look at the types of studies that they were looking at. For the most part, they were small studies with limited numbers of patients. But their conclusion was that demodex is, in fact, related to rosacea. And it, and it very well may be. As I mentioned earlier, we don't really have the full story. There's a Dr. Rich Gallo at UCSD in California. And he recently did a lot of work that led to a breakthrough in our understanding of rosacea. Uh, you may be familiar with the antimicrobial peptides that are made by the skin. 
Uh, there's one in particular called cathelicidin. So cathelicidin is an endogenous antimicrobial peptide that's made by all of our skin. Um, what he found was that patients with rosacea have increased expression of this antimicrobial cathelicidin peptide on the surface of their skin. The active form of cathelicidin is called the LL37, and he found that rosacea patients have an elevated level of LL37 in addition to some unique peptides on their skin. Now, the way that this antimicrobial cathelicidin works is that it's initially secreted as a pro-protein, so it's pro-cathelicidin. And then enzymes that are called serine proteases break that pro-cathelicidin down into the active cathelicidin. So serine proteases are very common enzymes that act on proteins to break down larger proteins into smaller proteins. So he found that patients with rosacea have increased activity of a serine protease called the calocrine 5 enzyme that converts the procathelicidin into cathelicidin. And what he found was if you took this enzyme and injected it in the skin of, mouse, of a mouse, they would get erythema, similar to the erythema that you would see in rosacea. So in comparing normal patients to rosacea patients, as far as the cathelicidin story goes, in a normal patient, you have that procathelicidin precursor. You have normal levels of the calocrine 5 enzyme, and you have normal levels of the cathelicidin active peptide. In the rosacea patient, you have an increased activity of this calocrine 5 serine protease enzyme that leads to increased activity of LL37 and increased in pro-inflammatory activities. So you might say, well, what's so bad about having increased antimicrobial peptide, isn't that a good thing? But in addition to killing bacteria, the, um, the, pro, the cathelicidin peptides can be chemotactic and they can be pro-inflammatory. So in the rosacea patient, they seem to be pro-inflammatory. Um, just as a matter of interest, some of you might be familiar with the cathelicidin story as it relates to atopic dermatitis and also to psoriasis. It turns out that patients with atopic dermatitis have lower levels of this endogenous cathelicidin antimicrobial peptide. So that's one of the reasons it's thought that patients with atopic dermatitis oftentimes have secondary infection of their skin. In contrast, how often do we ever see a patient with psoriasis that has secondary infection of their psoriatic lesion? Almost never. Um, so it turns out that in psoriasis, Within the lesion, there's actually increased levels of the cathelicidin antimicrobial peptide. And it's thought in that case that the cathelicidin protects against secondary infection within psoriasis lesions. So it's a very interesting area of research. And in terms of rosacea, the cathelicidin is really not so much having antimicrobial activity, but it seems to be having more pro-inflammatory activity. There was a recent study that wondered, people have always wondered, you know, why do people with rosacea have pustules? What's in the pustules? Is it bacteria? Is it a sterile pustule? So these people took sampled pustules from patients with rosacea and patients uh, with, uh, without rosacea. They also did a bacterial swab from the eyelid margin and from the cheek. Um, and what they found was that the rosacea patients had a pure growth of staph epi from the pustules compared to uh, patients that did not have rosacea. 
So these data suggest that staph epi could possibly play a role in the pustular rosacea and also in ocular rosacea. This is a relatively new report. Again, it's a small number of patients, but we thought it was interesting that these pustules had staph epi. Not quite sure what the clinical significance of it is, though. How many of you are familiar with the rashes that patients can get, cancer patients can get, when they're on drugs that inhibit the epidermal growth factor receptor pathway? So if any of you had cancer patients that may be on drugs like erlotinib or other, um, um, what's the other ones? They're, uh, they're yeah, erlotinib, imatinib, um, drugs that block the HER2 new in breast cancer. So basically, drugs that block the epidermal growth factor receptor pathway can have this characteristic rash that looks like acne, but it's not really acne. It's called an acneiform rash. Sometimes it looks like eczema. A lot of times it's secondarily infected. Uh, it's thought that cancer patients that develop this rash in response to these tyrosine kinase inhibitor drugs, their cancer actually does better for whatever reason. But recently, uh, we learned that as like in the case of the acneiform rash with inhibitors of the epidermal growth factor receptor pathway, there can be a rosacea-like eruption that can occur with these same type drugs that are tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So they found the use of imatinib or Gleevec and nilotinib or Tosiga. Um, they're tyrosine kinase inhibitors that inhibit a variety of um, enzymes. And these drugs can also cause a rosacea-like eruption. And this is a picture, it's not the best picture, but this is a patient who has sort of um, the macular erythema that you see uh, with rosacea related to the use of this uh, particular class of drugs. So something else you might want to be aware of. So now I'm going to talk about uh, the update regarding the management of rosacea. So in terms of new information, there have been studies to show that azelaic acid can decrease this calocrine 5 um, serine protease enzyme that's increased in rosacea. And that also that azelaic acid can inhibit the toll-like receptor 2 that we talked about earlier. There is more data that looks at the efficacy of the anti-inflammatory dose doxycycline, you know, the 40 milligram once a day doxycycline and the sustained release, uh, how that works in different subsets of rosacea patients, and we'll talk a little bit about that. There's been a, a, a nice comparative study that looked at pulsed eye laser compared to intense pulse light in treating the erythema associated with rosacea and also some reports of ocular rosacea being treated with cyclosporin eye drops. So this is a patient that I have um, with rosacea. She's now in her early 40s, but she first came to my office when she was in her early 20s. And at the time, she said to me, well, all the medications that I've been using for my acne are no longer working. And she basically had the beginnings of rosacea, even in her early 20s. So despite being treated with the best things that we have over all the years, she's still troubled with this degree of rosacea. So it can be a very difficult condition to manage. So why is rosacea hard, so hard to manage? Oftentimes, it can be mistaken for other conditions like acne, perioral dermatitis, seborrheic dermatitis, lupus, photo damage. Um, it can have different appearances, like I showed you in the first slide. There's different subtypes. It affects patients with different skin types. 
we have a limited understanding of the pathophysiology. We have a lot of ideas, but we aren't able to take point A to point B to point C to figure out why people have rosacea. And in terms of the drugs that we have to choose from, we're pretty limited in our therapeutic armamentarium. And some of the drugs that we use affect part of the symptomatology, but don't affect the others. So what are the therapeutic options in rosacea? Uh, topical therapies are often a good place to start. And the main ones include metronidazole, azelaic acid, and there are a lot of sodium sulfosetamide products that can be used uh, for rosacea. So I think most of us um, probably write for a lot of prescriptions for both the metronidazole and the azelaic acid, and oftentimes recommend these products in a wash or a leave-on product. Other things that can be used in rosacea, um, topical clindamycin, topical erythromycin, benzyl peroxide, or even the combination products. There's a couple papers that show that the benzyl peroxide uh, clindamycin combination might be helpful, and as is the benzyl peroxide erythromycin combination. Other things that have been used, tretinoin has been used in some patients because of the idea that that rosacea might relate to collagen damage and tretinoin can help to build up uh, the collagen. I, I think a lot of times rosacea patients have sensitive skin and may have some difficulty tolerating the topical retinoids. Some of the uh, other drugs like tacrolimus or pimecrolimus have also been used, um, but they're very just small case reports. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but this is basically just the data that showed that the azelaic acid can uh, decrease that calocrine enzyme that I talked about. It can also decrease the um, effect of Tolec receptor 2. So other therapies, oral therapies that we have to choose from, uh, members of the tetracycline family, tetracycline itself, doxycycline, minocycline. Oral metronidazole has been used in very rare cases, um, hardly ever, but it may be beneficial in a very small subset of patients. Um, the, more, the, the more recent medication that we've been using more of is the anti-inflammatory doses of doxycycline. So it's a sustained release formulation that delivers the uh, medication at a low rate um, such that you don't get enough in the bloodstream to actually kill bacteria. Uh, things for flushing. Flushing is hard to manage. Sometimes patients can be treated with beta blockers or with clonidine with variable effects. Some do well. Oftentimes, many of them don't. Very extreme or recalcitrant cases of rosacea have actually been treated with isotretinoin. And unlike the case of acne, the duration of effect in rosacea patients oftentimes is much shorter, which is unfortunate. So with the anti-inflammatory doxycycline, um, my residents oftentimes ask a lot of questions about this. They say, well, can I just give 50 milligrams of doxycycline once, or, or you know, wh what can I do to try to get the same effect? The whole idea is that the rosacea benefits from the anti-inflammatory activity of the doxycycline. And by using this, the low-dose formulation, you don't get levels in the blood that are high enough to kill bacteria. So if you were to give the 50 milligrams of doxycycline once a day, your blood level would peak above the level that's needed to kill bacteria. So when it gets into this range, it could induce uh, bacterial resistance. So the idea is to stay below that level that kills bacteria to benefit from the anti-inflammatory activity and to minimize the chance of bacterial resistance developing. Some of the more recent data um, looked at 
the efficacy of the anti-inflammatory dose doxycycline depending on how much patients weigh. Because most everyone's dosed the same way. You take one pill a day, it's 40 milligrams. Is that going to work for a thin person the same as it works for a heavy person? So what they did is they looked, um, they looked at the, the efficacy according to patient weight, and they divided them into patients that uh, you know, were heavier, sort of medium, um, and, and lighter here. And they found no difference in the efficacy based on body weight. So the, the dose seems to work for the different, uh, different patients of different weights. So um, I've talked right now, up, up to now, about the medical therapies for rosacea. And uh, I think some of the physical therapies for rosacea can be beneficial, uh, particularly with the lasers and lights for treating the subtype 1 uh, erythema of rosacea. There are reports on radiofrequency. I don't know too much about that other than that there's reports. There's also been reports on photodynamic therapy using ALA and different light sources. And I showed you some examples of the surgery for the, the rhinophyma. So in terms of laser and light sources, this is a list that continues to grow over time. But the, um, the, there are quite a few lasers that are good for the telangiectasia and the erythema of rosacea. And those include the KTP laser, the pulsed eye laser, the NDAG laser can also be used to treat the telangiectasia. Uh, for the rhinophyma, the ablative carbon dioxide laser has been used in sculpting the nose uh, back to its normal contour as well as others. The intense pulse light also is beneficial for the telangiectasia and the erythema. So as I mentioned, uh, at least right now, and hopefully not in the future, um, the oral and topical medications don't seem to make a big difference for the redness associated with, with rosacea. And the laser and light therapies for, uh, for the erythema may be better. There was a study recently that compared the efficacy of pulse dye laser compared to intense pulse light in patients with the subtype 1 rosacea. It was a split face study. And they had 22 patients that received the non-perprogenic doses of the pulse dye uh, compared to the IPL. So they got pulse dye on one side, IPL on the other. There were four patients that compared P, uh, pulse dye to um, no treatment, and four patients that compared IPL to no treatment. So they had three monthly treatment sessions, and they were evaluated at one month, uh, at, at baseline and at one month after their last session. And what they found was that both the pulse dye laser and the IPL resulted in statistically significant reduction in the erythema, the telangiectasia, and the, the patient-associated symptoms. And they noted that there was really no difference between the pulse dye laser and the IPL in these patients that they studied. And there's some uh, photographs that I included. This is a patient at, at baseline, and this is the patient after three treatments. And on the right-hand side, he had pulse dye, and on the left, he had IPL. And you can see that compared to baseline, he looks a whole lot better, and he looks pretty good on both sides of the face. Another patient, this is before pulse dye laser, and this is one month afterward. You can see the improvement. This is a patient before IPL, and one month after getting three IPL treatments. Again, you can appreciate the improvement. So in terms of therapy of the rhinophyma, uh, I talked with you, I showed you some pictures, actually, of the use of the cauterizing scalpel. Uh, excision of the redundant tissue can be done. Carbon dioxide laser can be done, or combinations of both. 
And this is the patient I showed you before. The dramatic improvement can make a big difference in a uh, patient's uh, quality of life. So there are some things that are off-label in the treatment of rosacea. One is, um, you know, if you think about the Demodex mite, could it be that the, if you kill the mite, the rosacea would improve? So that's the rationale. Some patients have been treated with oral ivermectin in, a, in an attempt to kill the Demodex mite. Uh, patients have also been treated with uh, topical permethrin, again, aimed at the Demodex mite. Uh, pomecrolimus has been used, photodynamic therapy, the oral antibiotic azithromycin has been used off-label in rosacea. And the last two are pretty interesting, and I think you'll hear more about this in the future. The oxymetazoline is uh, Afrin nasal spray. It's the same active ingredient in Afrin nasal spray. It's an alpha-1 adrenergic agonist, and it basically acts to decongest the nose by causing vasoconstriction of the blood vessels within the nose. Uh, there was a report in the Archives of Dermatology uh, a couple years ago where they took the uh, um, nose drops and applied it to the skin of a patient with subtype 1 rosacea, and they had improvement in their erythema. So the idea is that if you get this vasoconstriction in the skin, it will improve the erythema associated with rosacea. So since that time, the oxymetazoline uh, has been formulated into a topical product and it's now in clinical trials for the treatment of subtype 1 rosacea. A similar story, bromotidine is an alpha-2 adrenergic agonist, and it also causes vasoconstriction. It's currently used in an eye drop formulation uh, called alpha-GAN-P, um, and uh, patients have you know, used that eye drop in the same way to try to decrease the erythema associated with rosacea. So it's been formulated into a topical product, and it's also in clinical trials for the treatment of rosacea. So um, I'm hoping in the future that we'll have a couple new uh, medical treatments that we can use for our patients with the subtype 1 rosacea. So we should learn more about that in the future. I have um, some difficult cases that we'll go through. This is a patient with the subtype 1. And as I mentioned, it's a challenge for treatment because our medical treatments to date don't work really well for the subtype 1. So this is a patient um, that, at this point, I would, I would recommend a pulse dye laser or IPL, or she could try off-label the use of the nasal spray or the eye drops. So in the future, might benefit uh, from some of the new topicals for the erythema. There's another patient, again, with the subtype 1. So if you look at all the patients with rosacea, and we do a lot of clinical trials in our, our university for rosacea, so if we put out an advertisement to try to recruit for rosacea patients to enter a trial, we get about 10 patients with the subtype 1 for every one patient that we get with the subtype 2. So there are a lot of people with the subtype 1 rosacea. Oftentimes, rosacea can have an overlap with seborrheic dermatitis. So in many cases, patients can have both conditions, similar to this patient, where you'll get scaling and erythema in the nasolabial fold in the eyebrow, behind the ears, and oftentimes they have rosacea. And I sometimes wonder, is it because oftentimes patients with rosacea have very sensitive skin, and they're afraid to wash their face, so they can have some seborrheic buildup as well. So I wonder if that may contribute, it, uh, contribute to the rosacea in some way. I think these patients do well with the washes that contain the sodium sulfacetamide and sulfur, so it may help with the rosacea and also may help with the seborrheic dermatitis. 
there's a variant of rosacea called granulomatous rosacea. And the challenge comes, number one, in the diagnosis, as it can look like a variety of other things. So if you have this patient come in your office, she's got uh, violaceous to pink dermal papules all over the face. Your differential diagnosis would be huge. She could have lupus. She could have polymorphous light eruption. There's, um, she could have lymphoma. It, it could be anything. Um, and granulomatous rosacea oftentimes is almost a diagnosis of exclusion. So in this case, we would want to do a small biopsy to rule out any of these other conditions that I just mentioned. Uh, the downside is that this form of rosacea is pretty hard to treat. Um, you can try treating with antibiotics. You can try with topicals. There may be some improvement. Um, in patients with very severe granulomatous rosacea, I have treated some of them with isotretinoin, and they've gotten better while on it, but oftentimes it may bounce back. This is the patient I showed you at the beginning of my talk. This is the photograph from back when she was, in fact, in her 20s and presented with the um, beginnings of rosacea. So again, she came to my office saying her acne wasn't any better with the, with the retinoids and the, the scrubs that she was using. And um, you can see that she's got erythema and papules on the cheeks, nose, chin, and also on the, the forehead. And this is the patient a few years um, later. She had moved away from the area, still being cared for by a dermatologist, but she really developed into the severe granulomatous form of rosacea. And despite everything that I've mentioned so far in the talk, we've tried everything with this particular patient. It's been quite a challenge. Uh, we actually um, have tried with her uh, low-dose isotretinoin, which I don't like to do in any situation. And she's the only patient I have in my practice on low-dose isotretinoin because it's the only thing that can keep her um, better than this. And this is an example of her on the low-dose isotretinoin. So she takes 20 milligrams twice a week, and she's able to uh, maintain her skin. And we're very, very careful about that. When she's better, she cuts back on it. I keep track of her dose. Uh, the challenge comes is I don't know where the endpoint will be. And I really, I think it's an incredibly difficult condition. Um, you can imagine what it must be like to, to go through life like this and despite the best medical treatments, not be able to get a good response. I would love to learn what about the pathogenesis of her rosacea is causing this, because I think it would give us a lot of good information, but it still remains a, a, a challenge. So as I mentioned, isotretinoin may be effective in rosacea. It does not cause a permanent remission of the disease. We have no idea how it's working. We talk a little bit about ocular rosacea. Ocular rosacea, I think it's very important. Most patients don't know that they have ocular rosacea. So if you have a patient that has rosacea, ask them about their eyes. Say, do you have any problem with your eyes? Do they ever feel dry or burning? Or, and you'll be amazed at the numbers of patients that go, yeah, my, I always have dry eye. My eyes are watery. They burn. I never had any idea that it was at all related to my rosacea. So I think just asking that simple question, do you have any problem with your eyes? And let them tell you because um, it can make a big difference in their quality of life. So the eye findings of ocular rosacea, you can have frequent styes. You can have um, dilated blood vessels on the, on the conjunctiva. They can look bloodshot eyes. They can be watery. They can be dry. Uh, there can be actually scaling on the eyebrows and sometimes on the eyelid margins. 
This is some of the symptoms I just mentioned. They can feel like they have a foreign body, uh, dryness or itching. They can have redness around the rim of the eyelid, uh, conjunctivitis. They oftentimes have meibomian gland dysfunction. So the oil glands that are designed to lubricate the surface of the eye are dysfunctional. They, the lipid becomes thick and it trapped within the, the glands of the eye. And um, that can be uh, pretty much a, a challenge. So what ophthalmologists oftentimes recommend for ocular rosacea is they, what they call lid hygiene. Sounds kind of funny, lid hygiene. Um, they recommend warm soaks. And then if the patient has crusting on the eyelid, they can do a gentle wash with a baby shampoo to remove the crusts. They're very big on the use of artificial tears because these patients have dry eye. And things that have been reported, uh, cyclosporin eye drops, uh, you may have seen the brand name, uh, Restasis. There have been some studies looking at that. It's not approved for this use. Uh, and ophthalmic uh, or azithromycin has also been used. Again, it's off-label, but there may be some improvement. This is the study um, that I talked about. They, they looked at the cyclosporin ophthalmic solution it is FDA approved for dry eye. It's not FDA approved for rosacea. But um, it's interesting, a lot of ophthalmologists, the symptoms that we dis dis describe as being ocular rosacea, they just put a generic term on it and call it blepharitis. Just like we sort of have our generic eczema term, they have blepharitis term. And the rosacea patients fall into this subset of blepharitis. So they looked at 21 patients, and they received either artificial tears um, and 21 patients got cyclosporin, 16 got artificial tears. They were treated for three months, and they looked at different functions of, um, of the eye and looked at a variety of different assessments. And what they found was in the uh, cyclosporin group that they had significant improvement in their, um, the, the transit time of tears, the tear breakup time, uh, and symptomatic sco scores of the, um, the corneal surface, and they had improvement in their meibomian gland secretion. They had increased tear formation and decreased inflammation. So things on the horizon for rosacea, uh, hopefully we'll have improvements in the light and laser protocols. We're looking forward to having some medical treatments for the erythema associated with rosacea. On uh, that may be the bromotidine or the oxymetazoline. Uh, also that I didn't talk about, but there, are, there is a topical form of ivermectin that's being formulated and being studied in the treatment of uh, rosacea. So we may learn more about that. Uh, I think it would be interesting to learn more about topical dapsone in rosacea for its anti-inflammatory effects. And with the research that I told you about with the abnormal levels of cathelicidin and increased enzyme of the increased levels of the enzyme that produce the cathelicidin, Maybe down the line, we might have uh, treatments that will target those particular pathways. So thank you again for your attention. And if, if you're interested in rosacea, um, please check our society. We would love to have you join us as a member. Thank you very much. I think I can take a, a few questions. <laughs> oh, there we go. We got my mic back. Um, we might have a couple minutes for questions if anyone has a question. For, yes. the, for the ocular rosacea, do you go ahead and uh, prescribe uh, restasis or some of those, or do you refer them to their ophthalmologist? Um, I, ha I have prescribed it, but, um, and, but 
if it's somebody who has not seen by an ophthalmologist, I would prescribe it and then I would say, you know, why don't you check with your ophthalmologist and see if there are any other recommendations that they might have. So I do, I do prescribe it, but I do refer them just to have an evaluation. Most patients are pretty good about seeing an ophthalmologist already, um, but if they haven't, then I would recommend that they see someone. I'm sorry, I had a second question. About isotretinoin for these other uses other than acne and getting insurance, do you have any tips on getting the insurance company to cover it if it's not for acne? Uh, I haven't had anybody come back for me um, in terms of not covering if it wasn't for acne. I ha I personally, I haven't had any issues for that. I've been treating this woman for rosacea for a while and it hasn't been a problem. I don't know if it's, I'm sure there's differences between plans, but I haven't had a problem with that. Yes. For the oxymetazoline and the bromonidine, how are you having them use it? Are they using it daily? Yeah, oh, I forgot to talk about that. Yeah. Thank you for asking. Okay. Um, these are short-acting drugs. Right. So they may, they may last for maybe like four hours, six hours, eight hours. They're doing the trials to try to figure out how long they last. But basically, um, I would recommend to the patient to put it on about an hour before they want to look good. <laughs> if they're going to some event or something, right. uh, I'd have them put it on an hour before, and it may last four hours or so. It may last, you know, when they have these formulations made that are in trials, they may last longer, but the actual drops themselves don't, don't last that long. And I just have them put it on their finger and rub it on the area. Like sunscreen, you have to be careful to do it evenly, otherwise you look like a little, little blotchy. So um, that's what I do. But it, it does wear off after a while. It's not like you put it on once and it lasts all day. Okay. Any safety concerns or concern for rebound when using it? Uh, people have not reported rebound uh, that I'm aware of as of yet, but we don't know whether the skin behaves the same as the nasal mucosa in terms of the chance of rebound, but that's something that needs to be looked at. Do you have a protocol for using the per topical permethrin if you think suspect it's demodex? I'm sorry, do I have a protocol for what? For using the topical permethrin for like if you think oh, it's Oh, topical permethrin. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't done it myself. I have colleagues that do. So I don't know how, I don't really know how they use it. I bet if you looked in the literature, you could find some people that have written about that. But I don't know, sorry. Um, is there any benefit for the ocular symptoms with the oral antibiotics? Yes. Uh, doxycycline is a medication. Oral doxycycline can make a difference in the eye symptoms. I know that the standard dose does, and I know that uh, ophthalmologists often prescribe doxycycline for just ocular rosacea alone. There are I believe there were trials or there are trials looking at the, the low dose, um, 40 milligrams once a day for efficacy in ocular rosacea, but I don't have any information of, of what that showed. I don't know if it's been finished or not. Okay, sorry. And, and have you had any luck in getting um, IPL covered for rosacea patients? Um, most times, no. Okay. No, most of the light treatments are never covered, so I let patients know it's cosmetic. Okay, thank you. We, at the beginning, like years ago, they would cover it without asking any questions. And then we would write letters, and they sometimes covered it. Now they never cover it, so we don't. We just tell them it's cosmetic fee. Mm -hmm. oh, oh, flexible spending accounts. Oh, I understand. Right. What, what we were pointing out is that some people may be able to use their flexible spending money 
uh, from their um, employer's health insurance towards that. Uh, but but that, that's a good point. So that might be worth somebody checking into that. Yeah. Yes. Do you have any preference over um, washes versus leave-ons on some of these products like Plexion or Rosula? Oh, the question about washes versus leave-ons. Um, I think whatever the patient is willing to do. There are a lot of patients that don't mind leave-ons and a lot of patients that only want to use washes. So I, I always like to have a conversation with my patient to try to find out what they're willing to do. Because if they're not willing to do what you want, then it's not going to happen. So there's always a, some degree of compromise. If you started a rosacea patient on like oratia or low-dose doxycycline and then they decide to have IPL treatments, do you keep them on them during the treatment? And then I guess the same question goes if they're using any um, uh, retinoids. Yeah, I would keep them on. I don't think that it would be a problem. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yep. Um, when you're considering doing low-dose Accutane, like if you're having a patient on 20 milligrams twice a week, how do you go about doing that with iPledge um, monitoring that I see her every month. <laughs> she goes through, I go through the eye pledge. And you end up writing a prescription for just, you know, for like eight pills or however many pills they're going to need for the month? Yeah, whatever she needs for the month. Or if she has leftover, then I don't need to write a prescription, but we still go through all the procedures needed for eye pledge. Thanks. Do you have a sulfa wash that you prefer? We were prescribing a fair amount of Ovase wash, but it's no longer available in our area. Oh, I don't have any, per there's so many of them. I think that they're all pretty much similar. So there isn't any particular one that I use. Thanks. All right, well, thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your meeting.